Take your copy of God's Word, turn to Psalm 67 as we consider the entirety of this psalm and the preaching of it this morning. Psalm 67, I'll read the entirety of the psalm. It is seven verses in your English Bible. It is a psalm to the choir master with stringed instruments. It is a psalm. It is also a song. This is the Word of God. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That your way may be known on earth, that your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its, yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Amen. This is the word of the living and true God. Let's pause and ask for his help now as we consider this portion of it, the preaching of it this morning. Let's pray together. <clears throat> our Father, as we come now to this psalm, a psalm that we know very well, but a psalm that should be the very prayer of our own hearts as recipients of your kindness. May you, O oh God, show forth your favor to us as we hear your word proclaimed, as we hear it heralded. May you take that word and use it to the good and benefit and encouragement of your people. We thank you that you've given it to us for that purpose. May it be that light unto our path. May your spirit now help as you promised. We ask and pray for Christ's sake. Amen. It is true that each Lord's Day, as you gather as God's people in this room, that you have the benefit, and I do say the benefit, indeed the privilege, to say the Lord's Prayer. Now before I go on and exhort you with questions peppered with such items such as do you know and even understand what it is you are praying let me just help you with one of those things in the second petition of the lord's prayer which says thy kingdom come you pray we pray that satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. These words are true. These are the things that you are saying, whether you know that or not, as you pray that very petition each Lord's Day, each time you use the Lord's Prayer in prayer. When you pray, then therefore this prayer, you are praying that the gospel itself would advance across the whole world. It's a desire that you should possess as redeemed people, as those re- who have received the, the very blessing of God. You desire to see the nations rescued from their misery and sin, even as you desire to see your friends and loved ones also, as you yourself have been rescued from that very place of misery and sin, as recipients of this blessing of God, and indeed it is the highest kind of blessing. You desire to see his work, his kingdom, spread across the whole earth. 
As recipients of his blessing, you should then therefore not only pray for that to happen as we do each Lord's Day here. This is not mere exercise. Brothers and sisters, we don't bring a ruling elder up here to give you a report about the nations just to fill time. We do so that you might hear of the needs of your brothers and sisters in the world that's out there that is dying and going to a crisis eternity. And one of the things that you can do to stem the tide of that issue is to pray. But it's not the only thing. You must not only pray, you must live as recipients of God's blessing. You see, not only does God use the prayers of his people to save sinners, he also uses their lives as well. And all of it should be part and parcel of our daily Christian life. There's no such thing as a Sunday Christian and a Monday not Christian. I know they exist in word only. That is to say that our lives as framed with prayer for the nations to come to faith in Christ should also be marked by lives that live that same hope. All of this, of course, begins in, with the desire to see the nations rescued. Maybe you're here today and you don't really care. You're in, you're good, it's all fine and dandy for me. I know where I'm spending eternity. What difference does it make what the rest of the world chooses to do? Well, that may be true at some level. No, I'm not going to quibble with the words. Maybe I will later. But the fact is, as recipients of God's blessing, the very ironic benediction given to the people of old and now given to you as a church, in Psalm 67 should move each of us, each of you, to a zeal and a desire to see the nations rescued from their misery and sin. It's the only hope they've got and the only solution to what ails us in this world. And that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we give this report. This is why we say the things that we say from this pulpit. That's why you hear me repeatedly say to pray for your brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. Because the world is in desperate need of the hope of the gospel. The world is in desperate need to do and to be able to do what you and I are doing right now, and that is to stand in the very presence of the majestic, glorious, triune God and worship Him and hear from Him. For that's what will happen for all eternity. Is that not what you want and desire for the world, for the nations around you? I suggest if it isn't, then you need to do some serious soul-searching, maybe this afternoon. If it is, then may your tribe increase and may it be contagious among your, pe- your brothers and sisters in this room. We're not only mindful of the needs of our neighbors here in this community, but we want God's blessing poured out upon all the nations of the earth. We don't know the context of the psalm. We're not told. There are some scholars and I'm, who believe and, and, and think that this is a psalm of David. It does not tell us that. We don't know. But given the context and given the words and the way it's phrased, some have has led some to think that David wrote this. And if so, it's interesting. As a king, he would want the rescue of the nations. Of course he would, wouldn't he? 
for what can possibly subvert, subdue the enemies of God than the gospel itself. But whoever wrote it had one goal in mind, and that is to see the hope of Christ and the gospel advance, not just to the Jews, but to all people, everywhere across this earth. And so I want to show you this morning that as recipients of God's blessing, that is to say if you have received it, you should desire to see it spread across the entire earth, across all nations. You should want it. I'm going to show you that this psalm at least is teaching that much. It should te- it's teaching that you as recipients of the gospel of Christ should desire to see that very gospel spread across all the nations, across all the earth. That the Jew and the Gentile brought in and kept in. All people, everywhere. We'll see this in two points as we outline this psalm together. We'll first see the prayer for God's blessing and then the goal of that prayer. The prayer for God's blessing really is captured in verses 1 and 6. It begins basically the same way it ends. You note the words, may God be gracious to us and bless us. And then at the end, I'm sorry, the end of verse 7, God shall bless us. Let, uh, let the, all the ends of the earth fear him. It bookends everything that happens within the psalm, these beginning and opening lines of the psalm. The focus of the prayer, of course, is that object that all prayer must take, and that is the triune God. It's interesting that the psalmist does not invoke here in the very opening words of the psalm, and nor does he at all ever in the psalm invoke the covenant name. He simply says and opens, may God be gracious to us. He continues that same thought as he goes through the psalm, never invoking the covenant name of Yahweh one time in the seven English verses. Could it be that he's doing that to highlight the issue that the God of the Jews is not merely the God of the Jews only, but he is the God of all men? It is hard to know. But what we do know is that the object of this prayer is indeed the triune God. And with all true Christian prayer, God must be the object of our prayers. And in light of what is being asked of in this psalm, it certainly stands to reason that there's really no one else we could pray to or even ask of these things. He must indeed be the focus, as he is of every true Christian prayer. But when we're asking for the salvation of the nations, when we're asking for the salvation of our neighbors, when we're asking for the salvation of our friends and loved ones, who else can you possibly ask? For salvation is of the Lord. You see, he must be pleased to rescue them. You may want that, and you may desire it, and that's good, But ultimately, that must rest alone, singularly, with a sovereign God who is infinitely wise. For only he is able to rescue sinners. That's precisely how you came. It's precisely how you were overwhelmed with the hope of the gospel. Somebody probably was praying for you at some place, somewhere, whether you know that or not, either specifically or generically, 
As we this morning prayed for 23 million Christians in India, I don't know a single one of them. But I just prayed for 23 of my friends. 23 million of my friends. This is how you came to the hope of the gospel. Someone prayed, someone labored before the God who saves And through that means of prayer, he might then be pleased to rescue you. The general feature of the prayer, then, therefore, is that we are to pray for things that are agreeable to the will of God. That's what true Christian prayer is. True Christian prayer, and you can count on this when you pray, is to pray for things that are agreeable to his will. And is it not his will to save sinners? We know for a fact that it is, for he gave us Jesus Christ, he saved you, he saved me, so we know that he is pleased to save sinners. We just don't know who they are. We know that it's agreeable to God and his purpose to pray for the rescue of the nations, to pray for the gospel to advance. That's precisely what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. It's precisely what we pray every time we pray that prayer. We are asking for God to do what only God can do, and that which God wants to do, and that is to rescue people from their misery. Here, in this psalm, we're given four things to pray. All of it leads to the focus of the prayer, which we'll get to in a moment. Four things that are true of every Christian. Four things that are agreeable to the will of God for every Christian. Four things that are highlighted in different formats and structure, but the same and nonetheless of the ironic benediction that we find in Numbers chapter 6. There, God tells, he in fact commands Aaron to bless the people. And he does. He, speaking on behalf of God, gives this benediction to the people of God. But now, here in Psalm 67, the writer, whoever it was, whether it was David or other, he repeats the same ironic benediction, though changes the wording just a little bit and changes some things, but it's in essence the same. And what does he say? May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Now you read the word may and you think, well, we're just asking for God to do that. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. We're just asking God to be gracious to us. Maybe he will and maybe he won't. We're asking God to bless us. Maybe he will and maybe he won't. We're asking God to make his face to shine upon us. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. That's not the idea of the language. The language is one of prayer indeed, but it is one of prayer rooted in the settled truth that that's exactly what God has done for you if in fact you know him today. That is to say that if you are a Christian, you can sit here with all the integrity in the world and say that I know the Lord Jesus Christ. I can say these things are true of me and desire to see them advance more in me as I labor to see this same thing advance to the nations around me. What are we praying then? What things are we saying? The specifics of it. What is it requested? There are four main things that I've grouped under two general categories as we work our way through just this opening verse. 
Things we know, as I've already said, are agreeable to the will of, Lord, of the Lord. These things are not mere wishes, but are things that we have, be, we have because we are united to him by faith alone. Note, the prayer is exclusive. You might think, well, okay, how are you getting that one? I don't know either. I'm just making it up. Kidding. It's exclusive. How do I know that? Note the pronouns that is used by the psalmist in the opening verse. May God be gracious to us. You know, pronouns matter, by the way. I know we live in a world that doesn't seem to think that they make any difference, but they do matter uh, in English and grammar. And, and these pronouns, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us three times in the opening verse. The pronoun is used to highlight a specific people. What people? The people that have received the blessing of God, that have received his gracious work, that have received his countenance that has been shed upon them. The people that God has redeemed. Not just some general people at this point, not just some nobodies, but special people, unique people. People that have that which the world without Christ does not have. The very blessing and grace of God, it is only then true of those that are found in Christ, who have been united to Him. The psalmist, writing under the very inspiration of the Spirit of God, applies these things uniquely, exclusively to the people of God. Put it a different way, brothers and sisters, you should be very encouraged if you know Christ today. That you have the blessing of God always upon you. Not just on the Lord's Day when I pronounce the benediction. You have it every single day of every single minute of every single week all the time. That's not to say that you don't sometimes disappoint your Father in heaven. But you have his blessing. You have his grace daily. Minute by minute. Moment by moment. He'll never forget you. His face is always towards you. Not against you. I mean this is enough to make you just want to go out there and take on the world. It's true of you if, if you know the one who purchased and made this available and write to you. That is to say that you know the Lord Jesus Christ. It is then, therefore, as it's exclusive to those who know him, it's also exclusive to those who don't. That is to say it's untrue of those who refuse Christ. In fact, the very opposite words could be used. For instance, it could be said, may God be gracious to you or gracious to us. Well, it's equally true to say to the unjust, to the wicked and the evil of the world, to those not united united to Christ, that God will exercise his justice on the ungodly. That's to say, if you're sitting here this morning and you don't know the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, then you, you cannot say, may God bless me. Uh, what you can say, may God judge me. That would be true because he's going to. You can't say, may God bless us. God will curse those who refuse him and they will suffer the due consequences of their sin. By the way, none of these things should make us gloat. Nanny, nanny, we're better than you. Wrong. 
Now, it's all grace, remember. It should make us grieve that there are people in the world that would rather have these awful things. No, not God gracious to me. God exercises justice on me. No, not God bless me. God will curse me because I refuse to honor him. To, I refuse to repent of my sin. No, may, God may not make his face to shine on me. No, his face will be turned against me and oppose me at every turn. It's an exclusive prayer. Exclusively applied and rightly stated of the righteous themselves. But it's not only exclusive, it's encouraging. God gave it to Aaron to give to the people to encourage them. Note where they were in number six. They have yet not left Sinai. They've been languishing for about 11 months at the same location, at the same place, eating the same food, dealing with the same things, witnessing the same gore at the tabernacle. Day after day after day, millions of them, or at least numbering in the a little over a million. God, before he picks up the camp and moves them out, he tells Aaron, the high priest, to encourage the people. It is an encouraging thing to know that those who know the true God of the Bible can be encouraged by these simple truths and these simple words. Through a simple prayer, these items of fact that are true of you if you know Jesus. First, we note that God's face is turned toward us. One commentator explaining that phrase says this, A shining face is the opposite of an angry or scowling face. An illustration just popped into my head, and I'm going to use it in just a minute when I finish this quote, because I think it's good and maybe even a little bit funny. A shining face is the opposite of an angry or scowling face, and a face turned towards someone is the opposite of a fierce a face turned away in indifference or disgust. A shining face implies favor, the favor of the one whose face is shining. And it implies the friendliness of a warm personal relationship as well. God's face is turned toward you. As opposed to the angry face, the scowling face, or maybe the face of my wife when I do something that displeases her in the home and I get the look. All you men in the room know what I mean by the look. It's not a look of pleasure. We don't have that from our God. When your Father in heaven looks down upon you and as you pray this prayer and as you think about these words, he looks down upon you as his face turned to you with delight. The God of heaven delights in you with favor. His favor is displayed in two different ways. It's displayed in the favor of grace, God's grace. Isn't it true that for those of you who are united to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you have received not as justice, no, no, but 
what? Grace, not just any grace, not just mere grace, not just a little grace. But a grace that transcends even the human psyche and mind. An infinite grace. Let me ask you this morning, where would you be without it? Where would I be? Really, the answer to that question is too terrible to contemplate. That's why we don't usually do so. Where would we be without the grace of God? But yet, he tells us that his grace is given to us, to all that know him. It extends not only to the moment when you came to Christ, but it's a grace that carries you through each and every day. Whether you ask for it or not, by the way, and I'm not telling you not to ask. The psalmist asks, he says it, we too do the same. But not only does God's grace reveal to us that his face is turned towards you, towards us, we see also his blessing. The blessing of the ironic benediction in number six was that God was in their presence. Wasn't he? In the picture of the tabernacle and the throne of God and the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant, you might think all those passages in the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, are just tiresome to read and, 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 and study. And I'm going to tell you right now, they're, ble- they're, they're glorious and they give great comfort because they picture Christ ultimately and they give to us this hope that we so desperately need as Christians. His presence, His blessing is on us. The blessing in our daily lives. How is it that God does that? I look around and I don't see the Shekinah glory of God. But he does. The temptation is to think this blessing is that which is reserved only for material benefits. There's a corner of Christendom that thinks that, actually teaches that to their peril, and it's heretical. And while it may be true, and it is true, that if you have earthly possessions in this world, it's because God has been kind to you to give you those things. And frankly, we've been spoiled in America. We heard a report about India. We don't know what it's like to go without. But this is way means way more than any of those things. How is it that God has blessed us, blessed you? I know we're coming up to Thanksgiving, and in God's providence, by the way, the psalm I'm going to preach right before Thanksgiving is a Thanksgiving psalm, and I did not plan that, by the way. But these are one of those times when we can count our many blessings, name them one by one. You've heard the hymn. I don't think it's in our hymn book. Don't look. How has God blessed you? He gives you all that you need. Every one of you in this room are wearing clothes, of which I'm thankful. He's given you food, shelter, transportation. He's provided for all that he's promised to provide for you. He's given you a blessing upon blessing. 
gives you the comfort of his promises and his word. They're for you uniquely and exclusively. He gives you his word and the revelation of of himself in it. Every Lord's Day, you, whether you like it or not, you come here. I hope you like it. The privilege of hearing the word of God preached. And as a privilege, indeed, it's a blessing. He gives you the hope of the new heavens and the new earth. It's not this place. He gives you a church and a body of believers to weep with and cry with and rejoice with in this pilgrimage. Imagine trying to do it by yourself. I know some of you think you could. No, you can't. He gives us the blessing of the preached word every Lord's Day. He gives us the sacraments that teach us something about his love for us. He gives us his son. Now, this was just off the top of my head as I worked on this sermon and dropped these things in my outline. I'm sure this list could go on and on and on and on. The fact is that God, not only because he is gracious, uh, he blesses us. All of it is because his face is turned toward us, not against And so we see in this prayer, God's face turned toward us. We see also his presence with us. It's precisely the point of the ironic benediction. It's precisely the point of the psalm. In the first verse, you might think we're never going to get through this psalm before sometime around five this afternoon. He's still only in the first verse. How long have you sat and listened to me preach? Relax. It'll speed up. This has to be established before you can even bother to think about the nations. His blessing is displayed to us in his presence. The picture of God's face turned toward us is a word picture of his divine presence. On the day of atonement, God would look upon his people through the high priest as he would enter into the very holy of holies on their behalf. In the days of old, God would dwell in the midst of the people. Pictured by the arrangement of the camp at the Aaronic benediction as Moses stood and pronounced that benediction over the camp of Israel. As he saw in the backdrop the tabernacle and surrounding the tabernacle was the twelve tribes of Israel. And who was in the midst of the people but the God of heaven. In the days of Christ he dwelt in our midst. Literally he tabernacled with his with people. And today, he does the same in his presence is known and felt through the eternal spirit who dwells in each of you. What more do you need? You have his presence right now. The eternal God who created all things is present here, now, this moment, today. In the minds and hearts of those he redeemed. And finally... This blessing is demonstrated in his promises to us. He says at the end of the psalm, in verse 7, God shall bless us. He counts on that. He's not wondering, maybe he will, maybe he won't. He knows he will because of the exclusivity of the nature of the one praying as one united to him. And thus he counts on, therefore, the promise that God gives to every Christian. I will be your God and you will be my people. And... I will dwell in your midst. 
His presence lived out in the promise, the eternal promise, the hope that we all have even this morning. And it is, well, no, it's afternoon now. That we will be where he is. That we will be there in the new heavens and the new earth. Now we have his presence in many ways. And the promise is given to us in many different ways. But in the future we look, even as the psalmist looked, to that day in which the new heavens and the new earth are ours, secured for us by the work of Christ. It is not a maybe. It is a guarantee. This prayer, then, therefore, is the foundation in which we pray for others. It moves us in our own hearts and our own souls to pray for the nations, to pray for the lost, to pray for our friends, our loved ones, our family. To pray that God would bring all nations to himself. That they too might experience even the very things that you and I experience every single day and probably have taken it for granted. It's the foundation upon which we as recipients of these very things that we then ask in prayer that they might then spread to the nations. The desire to see them in the lives of others. We desire that others may experience the very things that we have experienced by the kindness of God As those who have received the light of his countenance, we desire to reflect that light to the watching world that they too might know the God of heaven and praise him like we do. The psalmist goes through this in the the rest of the verses from verse 2 all the way through verse 6. He gives, as it were, the purpose, the goal of the prayer. That's the whole idea of the opening words in verse 2. That your prayer, that your way These things are all true of us, so that your way may be known among all of the nations. It's a purpose statement. You think what you were just rescued from your sin and misery, that you might just hide it to yourself and never tell anybody, not live before anybody, not pray for anybody, that they too might then see the hope of Christ? If that's your attitude, you need to repent, because that's not the reason That your way, that is to say God's way, may be known on the earth. The goal of the prayer, first, is that the law of God might be known to all the people. One of the reasons we're in the mess we're in in this world today is because the law of God has been trampled underfoot. I mean, how smart do you have to be and how much seminary training do you have to have to know that the reason the world is in the chaos it's in is because of the outworking of sin and rebellion against the very word of God? What solves that problem? More laws in Washington, of course. Let's, let's vote for better, more legislatures. I mean, after all, I mean, let's do all the... Now, look, I'm not saying don't vote. I'm saying there's a bigger thing needed. And that is the hope of Christ to come to bear that the law of God might find its rightful place in their lives. Right now, all it does is condemn them as it condemns you. And we pray that the law of God, God's way, may be known among the entire earth. That it would come to bear on those who do not yet know him in a salvific way. It is the law of God that drove you to salvation, to repentance. It is the law of God that will drive all men to repentance. It was the very law of God that drove the Apostle Paul to repentance. It is the law of God that we see and recognize that we cannot keep and need help. No, we need a substitute. We need a savior. Who can keep it?
You pray for conviction of sin of the nations. Their leaders to be overwhelmed day and night with their rebellion against God's law. You ever prayed that? I dare you, pray it. Father, may they not rest a moment until they repent of their rebellion against you. Oof, I can't do that, but he can. You pray for those in your family that they might see their failure to keep the law. You pray for the leaders of our nation to see that they too will be judged by this law and if so, stand condemned by it. It's not more legislation we need then. No, we need the law of God to come against the souls and consciences of other, other people that they might be convinced of their need of Jesus. Second, we pray that the law of God would be lived by those who do know him so that your way may be known upon, upon the whole earth. That is to say, for those of you who have been blessed by God, have his face turned towards you, receive his, the light of his countenance and his kindness and grace every single day, you pray that you too would keep God's law in its third use as a measurement of your sanctification and growth and grace. Jesus Christ himself said that you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Why? Why are you those things, Jesus? Why are we those things? I thought you said you are those things. Well, yes, he is. But you are too. Salt that would retard decay. Is the world not decaying? How much faster would the world decay if it wasn't for the gospel? How much faster would the world decay if it wasn't for godly people? Again, too terrible to contemplate. You're the light of the world. Why are you these things that you might do them? Why? So that others might what? See what? Your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Hmm. That God's way may be seen and known on the whole earth. Second, the salvation of God. We want and desire the salvation of God, your saving power among all nations. Verse 2. Who is it that can save the nations? Not you, not me. I can preach a thousand sermons, but only God saves. The gospel is for all people to hear. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go into all the world and make disciples of every nation, nation, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The gospel is for all to hear. And we are to go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. And you must be willing to offer it to any that can hear and will hear you. You know, the gospel is not just from my job. Oh, you, you know, that's your job. You're the minister. Uh-huh. No, wrong. My job is to help you do that job. That's actually my job. Not to say that I don't give the gospel to anybody who will listen to me, but my job is to teach you how to give it to people who will listen or might listen to you. We all have the responsibility that we might see the salvation of God come to the nations, come to people. Because it is a work of God, not your work. 
Note how the psalmist puts it, your saving power. Not my saving power, what can I offer? God's saving power. The power of God unto salvation to all those that believe. That power. It is God alone that saves the nations. It is God alone who saves your friends and family. It is God alone who saves politicians and leaders. It is God alone who saves you. It is through his power and the working of his spirit that saves sinners. Therefore, you must pray for it. And you must live like it before the world. Third, the psalmist highlights the presence of God that we desire for the nations. We don't only desire that they wouldn't take note of the law of God and what he demands of them. We don't obviously only desire that they would come to faith in God. We desire also that they would know something of the presence of God. Like we have known and do know. Verse 4. And the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Now this is true nonetheless. Because God is sovereign. But we pray more specifically for an understanding of his presence with the nations of the earth. For those outside Christ, this presence comes not in kindness but in judgment. For those inside, those who know Christ, it comes with comfort and hope. A judgment that won't fall upon them but falls upon Christ and him only. For judgment must happen, and it will. And then finally, and really, the goal of the psalmist here should be our goal, which is the goal of our lives as it should be, and we hope for the nations as well, is the very worship of the triune God. He repeats it, really, and that's why the emphasis is here in the psalm, both in verse 3 and verse 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And then he says it exactly the same thing in verse 5. It's not as though we couldn't read it the first time. But no, he says it twice. That we might see the driving force of all of this desire for us as those who have received God's favor and kindness that all the nations of the world would stand and worship and praise to the God who saves. You see, it's all going to happen anyway. God will be worshipped one way or the other. God will be worshipped by those who where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess by force that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father or, and much better, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess gladly with great joy and exuberance that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But nonetheless, everybody's going to do it. And our desire and our prayer is those that have come voluntarily this morning into this place to worship the living and true God and to do so apparently with joy and delight, to do so as an act of the will and conscience because you know how desperate you are for it every single week. Your desire is to see the nations, people around you, do it with joy and gladness just as you do. Because that's what Christians want to see happen in the world. This prayer, none of these prayers actually, none of these things 
that I've outlined for you are mere wishes. They will all come to pass. God will indeed display his law upon the earth and use it to judge the nations who will not repent. God indeed does save and has saved many within nations. We heard of 23 million this morning. God does and will dwell with his people wherever they are, and God will be worshipped, even if sticks and rocks have to do it. All of them will happen. But we still pray nonetheless. And we plead with the God of heaven to bring many in to his glorious kingdom. The fact is that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has been blessed. Brothers and sisters, you have been blessed beyond measure. I I challenge you, go home as families and sit around and try as you might. Come up with a hundred things God has blessed you with. I know one family that's probably going to do it, and then I'll probably be hearing about it during the week. The point is, you'll never run out of paper. There's not enough paper. You've been blessed. You breathe oxygen in this room. God gave it to you. You've been blessed. You have friends. You're sitting next to friends. You've been blessed. Some of you have great wise husbands. You've been blessed. You have children. You've been blessed. You have this church and people that love you. You've been blessed. You have Christ. You've been blessed. You have the hope of eternity. You have been blessed. You have been blessed. Don't you want that for others? Indeed, you do. And so we recognize that all nations will give an account and we plead on their behalf that they will indeed see Christ, the hope of glory. And as we do so, we remember that we too must live as we hope they would. According to all that God has told us. We do this not because it merits anything, but because God has been gracious to us and blessed us because God has made his face to shine upon us because God has said, I am your God, and you, you are my people. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have made great promises to us. What encouragement it is to know that the God of heaven has his eye upon us weak people. Never let us go. His presence will always be with us. His grace, his kindness, his faithfulness is new to us every day. Indeed, we have been blessed beyond measure. May you, O Father, take that that same hope and advance it to the nations, to our nation, to our leaders. May they see that you are good and kind and you will forgive. May they hear you. May they hear you, we pray, for Christ's sake.